everyone. Thank you for joining us on this episode today. I am very excited to share this one with you all because it is with Mo Godot. And before I even share who Mo is and what he's done, I'd like to say that this, for me, this is someone who I've been wanting to meet for a long time. Before I even had started this podcast two years ago, I came across this story and was so inspired by it and was so moved by it. And it really had a lasting impression on me. Uh, He basically is an OG, to be honest, but he is formally uh, the chief business officer of Google X. He co-founded more than 20 businesses. He is a serial entrepreneur, and he wrote the international bestseller, Solve for Happy, and he has come up with the happiness equation, what he has termed, and he's cracked the code to happiness. And one of the reasons that inspired him to do this was a story that he's going to share with us, and it involves the the loss of his son, Ali, and the legacy that Ali has left for him and inspired him to, um, to move forward and share a message with the world and help make one billion people happy. I really encourage you to listen to this episode. It changed my life, even again after I met Mo and had the chance to speak with him. And, you know, even the days that ensued have, uh, you know, the, the impression that I got really lasted with me. So I hope you guys take in this episode and enjoy it. Before we get into the episode, we are going to shout out our medical apparel sponsor, Metalita at Metalita.com. Metalita is the leader in medical apparel. They produce the highest quality scrubs, white coats, and scrub jackets that you can find on the market. And if you are a medical professional, you should be shopping at Metalita.com. I recently received the Bernard white coat, which I have finally gotten to work and wear to clinic. I've gotten numerous compliments wearing it, and it's uh, truly been an amazing gift to receive from Metalita. I highly recommend going to their website if you're looking or in the market or looking to gift somebody a white coat. Go to metalita.com. They are currently holding 35% off on select styles. So get your white coat or scrubs at metalita.com. Oh, and don't forget to get them embroidered. This episode is also brought to you by Resolve Physician Agency. Resolve is on a mission to empower physicians in every facet of the transition from training to practice, providing the advice that we did not get in training. Resolve uses salary data to ensure that physicians are armed with the same tools as the employers. They routinely see increases in annual compensation with a recent physician receiving an increase of $200,000 per year. Uh, That's not a typo. It's actually true. Uh, So if you're in the process of signing a contract, it's important you have somebody on your side. Do yourself a favor, get your contract reviewed by their team, and check them out online at resolvephysicianagency.com. Their team reviews over 1,000 physician contracts annually, and 90% of those contracts are initially substantially below the median. Meanwhile, most new grads feel that they have no leverage. So visit resolvephysicianagency.com. First, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for the kind words. I, uh, I, uh, I think the podcast you mentioned was probably the first podcast I ever did. And uh, it was right after I, uh, I published my book, Solve for Happy, which was quite an emotional time for me. I, I think the story of Solve for Happy was... Um, 
you know, perhaps a, a once in a lifetime story for many of us. I, I, I lost my wonderful son. Ali, Ali was um, 21 and a half at the time he left our world. Ali was um, not just my son. Uh, in, a, in a very unusual way, I uh, roles changed in my relationship with Ali. So, so he was my son, uh, and then he was very wise. Um, all his life, even at a young age, you know, like, even younger than ten, uh, Ali would say the wisest things. And and in a in a very interesting way, I I noticed, and you know, I became very close to him uh, as a mentor and as a as a as a friend. And you know, in a in a very unusual way, I would go to this eleven or fifteen year old, and I would ask him for things, and you know, always. Uh, always have him uh, advise me on how to go through life, and and I think the the, the thing he advised me most on of uh, on was was the idea of happiness. So I wasn't I was always successful. I'm probably the luckiest man you will ever uh, meet, uh, uh, you know. But I wasn't always happy at a, at a very young age. I um, I had everything that people you know spent a lifetime striving for, uh, striving for, and I, you know, and I and I had the cars and the big house with the swimming pool and, you know, everything I could wish for, I could afford at age 29. And I was miserable. I was, I was almost depressed and, you know, probably depressed. And, uh, and Ali on the other hand was this tiny little Zen monk, you know, who was always happy, always peaceful, always quiet. And, uh, you know, as I went through my struggles, he started to advise me, direct me in my research. I, I researched the topic of happiness from a very unusual point of view. I researched it like an engineer in a, in a very logical and systemic way. Uh, but Ali was the heart, if you want. He was that uh, uh, instinctive understanding of happiness. And every now and then when I discover something, I would go back to him and he would smile and listen to me and then say, Papa, you could have just asked me and, you know, and basically tell me what I discovered from a logical left brain point of view as a, as a natural, if you want. Uh, 2014, uh, July 2nd, uh, Ali uh, was diagnosed with a very simple surgical uh, procedure, uh, an appendectomy, uh, and uh, it went wrong. Many things went wrong five things as much as far as I understand, all were fixable, uh, all uh, were preventable. Uh, but unfortunately, errors happen. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always remind myself in tough times that when I make a mistake, I lose a deal. I'm a businessman. When a surgeon makes a mistake, mm -hmm. uh, they lose a person. And, yeah. and so uh, four hours in the operation, into the operation, Ali was gone. And uh, unlike what is expected in those situations where you sort of earn the right to cry for the rest of your life, uh, we didn't. Neither did neither, neither I nor his mother or his sister. We were so peaceful, almost as if his peace was all over us. And uh, and instead of wanting to take revenge, you know how how they say a life for a life. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the only thing in my mind at the time was uh, one thought, which is Ali's life is not worth a life. Ali's life is worth 10 million lives. That's the only thing that I could tell. I, I kept telling myself. And 
I didn't want to take anyone's life. That's not me and not him at all. Mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted to give life, and and so uh, in a in a, a very unusual way, instead of uh, just closing my door and crying until I decay, mm-hmm. I decided to to write. I I wrote what he taught me about happiness, and I thought if I shared that with 10 million people as a as a lifetime target mm-hmm. was was 10 million for me. Uh, then I've honored him, and it's probably it's it's surely not going to bring him back, but it's probably going to make the the world a slightly better place, make him proud of me, and make people remember him and love him. And so, I did that. I wrote Soul for Happy. I published it in 2017. It became an international bestseller, and my videos started to go viral all over the web. And so, within eight weeks, we reached 10 million happy. And uh, and we were all shocked as a small team, and so we sort of, you know, gave ourselves a, 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 a real target this time, which was a billion happy. And wow. a billion happy, and billion happy is an important target for many reasons, uh, especially if you think about how our world is changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this time this is a lifetime target. So you know, yeah. n- n- not weeks this time, but probably the rest of my life. Awesome. Well, we're going to hopefully try and make a little tiny dent with that episode with that today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's the idea. Yeah. Something stuck with me from listening to the audiobook, and it was the way you described uh, when Ali was going to visit you prior to this all ha- happening. And um, you mentioned that he was in Boston at the time yeah. and yeah. he flew out to visit you guys a couple of days later. Can you tell me what that was? Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that, to me, that part really gave me goosebumps. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to remember. Uh, it's tough. It's painful to remember. Believe it or not, even and we don't have even, to. If we don't have no, to. no, 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 no. It's okay. It's uh, so Ali. I, I feel that Ali knew he was leaving. I really do. You know, I'm. I'm, don't don't think of me as a you know as a mystical uh, spiritual person. I am as a spiritual, but uh, I'm very 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 hardcore science and engineering driven. Uh, but the evidence uh, is you know all points to the idea that I truly knew. Uh, they say that a lot of young people, hopefully good-hearted people, know. And, and uh, a few days before he came to visit, he. Uh, he uh, he do, he wanted to go um, to change majors to go to another university and, and and that would have meant he would have had to move to another city and so I kept asking him uh, you know to sit down and discuss it you know so that we can make plans and I remember vividly that he said in the exact words it's okay Papa don't worry about it I don't think I'm gonna make it and in my heart. I remember that I thought at the time that he meant I have changed my mind, okay? But he actually did mean I'm not going to make it. Among many other signals that he told his sister and his mother, it was very clear that he was sort of finalizing his you know, his last uh, targets in life before he leaves. And, and the last thing he did, actually, two days before he left, was uh, we went out to uh, to lunch as a family, and he sat down. And I said, you know, Ali didn't talk much in general. He, you know, he was very 
you know, targeted in, in, in the words that he would say. And when he spoke, you had to listen. And this was probably the only time in my life that I heard Ali speak for 40 minutes or so. So he looked at my at me and, and, and his mother and his sister. Each of us, he told us how much he loved us, uh, how much he appreciated our presence in his life, uh, how he believed that we made him or helped make him the person that he is. It, he was so kind. He was so kind. Uh, and then he looked at each of us and said, but there is a couple of things I want you to change about yourself, almost like a, a grandfather, a dying grandfather dictating his will, if you want. And he basically said uh, to me, he said, Papa, uh, you know, I've, I've been a very fortunate person in terms of success in business and wealth and also the impact I had in the world. I, I, I ran Google Emerging Markets for a long time, and so I got... Uh, I got, uh, you know, knowledge and information democracy, if you want, to more than half of Google's offices worldwide, close to 100 languages. And, um, and uh, you know, Ali knew I was motivated to make a difference, but he also knew that I was contemplating to stop working. Uh, you know, I, I felt I have done my role. And so he looked at me and he said, Papa, I, uh, you should never stop working. But I think it's time to start doing something that depends on your heart a little more often. He, uh, in those words, as he always did, he basically summarized my life since. So I work 14-hour days still today, but I work on something that's entirely about the heart. One Billion Happy is entirely a mission uh, that is driven from my heart, not from my left brain, executive-like, uh, you know, engineer's approach to life. And I think when he... Um, when he said that, uh, um, and, and when he said, he told his sister, uh, two, two, uh, two weeks before he died, he told his sister that he had a dream. And his dream was to be everywhere and part of everyone. And that he, uh, basically he told her, when I woke up, it felt so amazing. I didn't want to come back to my body. Wow. And so between those two, when, um, when he, uh, when he died, uh, only four days after he died, Aya, his sister, told me about that dream. And in a very unusual way, I took it as a quota. Uh, you know how businessmen are? So, so to me, this was the target set to me by my teacher, if you want. And so everywhere and part of everyone in my mathematical mind was 10 million happy was if I could share him, share his essence with 10 million people through six degrees of separation in you know, a decade or a hundred years, he would be everywhere and part of everyone. Crazy, I know. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it's working. It really is. And, and the number of people that read Soul for Happy or watched some of my videos who talk about how much they love Ali and they love what he gave them. Mm -hmm. uh, he's really become everywhere and part of a lot of people. Wow. The way you describe Ali throughout the book is someone who is seemed very wise and very grounded and you talk about him in a way that's really that's really inspiring because I know people like this in my life that I'm just like maybe younger than me that I'm like wow I look up to you yeah and it sounds like Ali Ali was that person yeah I can mean you, when he what was he, he was... like day to day what was his how how can you describe he, him he, he was he was either very quiet or very playful uh, you know, nothing really 
really uh, got to him. Uh, I think he got, I saw him get angry once and I saw him get upset with me or, you know, basically frown in my face once. Uh, actually, after that, like a few, uh, half an hour later, I went back up and apologized. It was my mistake that he, you know, uh, but but he, he um, I think he understood life. I think he understood that our life uh, is going to uh, come with a bit of challenges. And, uh, you know, that our life, uh, the challenges are there for a reason. They're, the challenges are there for us to learn and to develop and to grow in, in his, in his uh, you know, video gamers approach to life. The challenges are there to make us better video gamers, right? Uh, and, and he understood that the idea was to play that there are things that you can change, there are things that you can improve, and there are things that you have to accept. And, you know, neither of them uh, warrant your unhappiness, which is really, you know, honestly, that's the whole point. The whole point is your unhappiness doesn't lead you to any progress at all. It doesn't make anything any better. You understand? It's a, you know, it's a, it, whether you decide to play and, and engage and try to improve and change things, or you decide to literally let go and say, okay, so this one's not going to happen, like losing a child. You know, they, they don't come back. So, you know, what what choice do you have? You let go. You say, okay, life, not a good move, but I have to, you know, how do I make life better from here? And I learned that from him. I also learned. Uh, um, no judgment. Ali had zero, zero judgment. I was the most judgmental business executive you can ever see because because of the pace of my life. You know, people walked into my office uh, every half an hour with requests to, uh, you know, invest a high, you know, a million dollars or ten million dollars or you know, do this or do that, and I had mm-hmm. to make decisions and I had to make them fast. And I thought of it as, you know. Um, being able to uh, to categorize things and just make quick decisions, but no, my categories were where you know things like he's an idiot, he doesn't know what he's talking about, you know she's uh, um, not going to get it done, and you know I I judged all the time, and Ali had zero judgment, zero zero, you know he would look at anybody and anyone and say simply you could have been them, if you had walked in their footsteps you would have been them absolutely. Uh, He had uh, total love, total love. He was just made of love. Uh, When he, uh, you know, when when his mother would uh, would ask him for to do something that he wouldn't want to do, he would simply uh, entertain her if you want, you know, ask her a few questions and like, oh, why, Mama? Why do you want to do this? Do you want to do it differently? Can I? And then eventually he would say. Well, look, Mama, I, I listen to you. I think it's, you know, you have a good point, but I'm not going to do it. But I love you. And you could see his mother melt. Every time he would say that, she would go like, okay, Habibi, it's fine. You don't have to do it. <laughs> We're okay. It's good as you love me. And then she would hug him and, and that's it. And he handled all of life through love. And, you know, this is not about Ali. This is, not, this is really about Ali's essence. Yes. And, and that approach of handling all of life with love Believe it or not, made me the most successful businessman I could ever be, wow. because you know what? In you know, we 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 think from the modern world's approach to things that we have to um, we have to fight and be aggressive and compete, and 
you'll be amazed. Yeah, sometimes those things work, but they take a, a whole toll on you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, love also works, even in the most complicated of business environments. Uh, you know, there is something about everyone that is lovable. And if you can find that and share your points of view uh, from a point of love and respect, uh, from a point of no judgment and from a point of wanting to make things better, you know, using the right words. Uh, yeah, you can go very, very far. You can go very far. Wow. It sounds like Ali was just an, uh, an amazing person to be around. And I can see how how spreading his message is helping so many people because we all know people like that in our life who there's something about them that is just we want to be around them we want to we want them to rub off on us and it sounds like Ali was that person you 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 said something a little bit earlier about handling tragedy in life and i think that's where a lot of people fall off a cliff so to speak of course because when something tragic happens and you're not, especially when you're not prepared for it, you're if, never prepared. Yeah, it, you, it could set off just a cascade, and yeah. depending on how you handle it, it can, it can mean everything. And I think that's why a lot of people can relate to your message and to your story because we all are our our biggest fears for everybody is you know our loved one passing away or someone very dear to us not being in our life anymore and the way you talk about it gives us gives everybody hope because that's everybody's worst nightmare and how were you my question is is where did this how did how were you able to to look at the bright side and what was the essence that kept you going forward and and comforting you was it the spirituality was it the knowing that he's still living was it knowing that his his essence is still living his message is going to reach people what was it that really helped you keep going forward so so to 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 I'll I'll come to answer that in a in a minute but let me tell you that no it's not everyone's worst nightmare okay mm-hmm. so so uh, as a matter of fact our worst nightmares are different some of us are scared of abandonment some of us are scared of you know uh, uh, rejection some of us are uh, are scared of losing a loved one and so on and interestingly i have no scientific proof of this even though i believe me i tried to find some but from my observations, it seems that the calamities and challenges of life uh, always, always are the one that you fear most. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're the one that you need to be trained to overcome most. So, so in my, uh, you know, in my, I, I don't want, I don't want to scare people and say what you fear is going to happen. I think what's going to happen is what you need to develop on. The reason why we get challenges is because they're opportunities for growth. Absolutely. And, and, you know, life sends you challenges, life or God, whichever you want to believe in, sends you challenges because uh, because um, uh, you, you need to either change direction or learn something. OK. And as long as you don't learn and as long as you don't change direction, uh, the tests will keep coming back. Uh, they're just messages that you need to observe. Now, um, at the same time, for everyone that challenge feels like losing a child is to me, okay? So someone 
so I'll tell you openly, my, so I don't talk about someone else. Huh? If I had lost all of my money uh, and all everything I've ever earned and everything I've ever owned, hmm, which to some people would sound like a devastating disaster, it would have meant absolutely nothing to me. I wouldn't have stopped for a second. Uh, it's losing Ali that is my big test. Losing Ali is my call for development. Losing Ali is my call for growth. Okay, Nothing could have shaken me to change my life the way I did like that loss. So in an interesting way, most people forget that when we look back at all of the challenges we had in our life, most of the time, when you look back at them, you realize that they were things that shaped you as the person that you are. And I do a small, you know, a quick test in Solve for Happy that I call the eraser test, where I tell people if I gave you a technology that would allow you to erase some of those events, knowing that it will erase everything that happened as a result, every development, every friend, every learning that you had, and so on, would you erase it? And most of the time, more than 98% of the people would erase nothing at all. Nothing. Yeah. regardless mm -hmm. of how painful it felt at the time. Now, your question was, so how do you do that in the midst of the tragedy? Um, there is something that's really, really important to understand. Uh, two, two characteristics of happiness are misunderstood in our modern world. One is we believe that happiness comes from outside us. That's absolutely not true. Happiness is a choice. Okay, it's something that we choose from inside us, despite the circumstances of our life. You could be in the midst of a tragedy and feel happy, and you could be rich, famous, and drowning in money and feel unhappy. It's a choice. Absolutely, what life gives you is not is not the determinant of your happiness. But what's more important, I'll come back to this. But what's more important is to understand that all of the unhappiness in the world for the rest of your life is not going to change a thing. I could have closed my door and cried for 27 years, okay? It wouldn't bring Ali back. Do you, do you understand how that is? Huh? Yeah. Now, you'll be, you'll be amazed how I learned this. Hmm? I learned this in the stock market. So at a, at a very young age, I was a very, uh, you know, because of my math skill, I was a very uh, skilled uh, technical uh, uh, trader. So I basically, uh, a day trader, I would buy stocks and lose stocks and I made, I could print money, literally. Uh, it was crazy. Huh? And, uh, and every now and then you'd make a mistake. And, in, you know, you could have made 12% that day and that mistake wipes out 4% of what, you know, of you know, the 12 that you made. And for many people, or even 14, it doesn't matter, huh? For, for many people, they would just focus on that mistake and just stick with it and cry about it and blame themselves and torture themselves and regret, and, right? Mm -hmm. while, while true day traders, true traders realize that losing is part of the game. It's part of the market. It's part of how life operates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't expect to win every trade. You have to lose a few of them. And the best of us, the best of the, of the stock market traders were the ones that looked at the, the loss, took the right decision, sold at a loss, okay? took notes of what went wrong, learned, and went up, had a cup of tea, came back, and started trading again. Okay. And, you know, and this is truly what life is all about. Huh? You have to realize that 
no unhappiness, no whining, no complaining, no, uh, you know, isolating yourself, no blaming your, you know, life or others for your situation is going to change anything. Mm -hmm. And that truly was my situation. So after Ali died, because of my prominent position at Google at the time, I received a call from the officials in Dubai saying, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Is it okay if we perform an autopsy on Ali's body? And so I looked at his mother and sitting next to me. I said, Nibel, is it okay if, if they perform an autopsy? And she said, you know, in her own wisdom, which I think has been part of Ali's wisdom, she said, will it bring Ali back? And you have to imagine that this, I basically wow. hung up and I said, can I call you back? Because that was the, 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 the core of, every, of the rest of our life in four words. Will it bring Ali back? Okay. Now, for anyone who feels unhappy, I think the number one question to ask yourself is, what is your unhappiness doing for you? Okay. Now, if you, if you, you know, in, in Solve for Happy, I speak about unhappiness as a survival mechanism. It's our brain's way of looking at the world around us, realizing that something is not exactly how it should be. It's not exactly the optimum setup that allows you to, uh, to perform in life. And so your brain alerts you in the form of an emotion. If it, if it alerted you in the form of a thought, you don't listen. So it alerts, alerts you in the form of an emotion, and that emotion could be sadness, could be regret, fear, worry, whatever it is. And in that case, unhappiness is just the fire alarm. It's basically telling you there is something that requires your attention here. Leave the building. Okay? Now, the problem with all of us is that we, uh, first of all, don't leave the building. So we don't take action. And two, we keep playing the fire alarm over and over and over. You know, your your friend says something rude on Friday. You remember it on Saturday. And then on Sunday, you say, because I'm an idiot. And then on Monday, you say, because I don't have hair. And right. he doesn't like me because I don't have hair. And, and you know, life goes on from there. Huh? Yeah, and so and, and that, that madness is not created by life. Remember, huh? it's created by you. Mm -hmm. We make ourselves unhappy. Yeah. So losing Ali to me was a, a question. So do I want to do I want to spend the next 27 years crying or do I want to do something with it? And, and I'll tell you openly, huh? I've, I'm today and every day at the highest point I have been since losing Ali. OK, nothing, nothing would ever compare to uh, to a hug. Uh, from him. Huh? I, I, I give everything all up other than the, the mission hmm? for one hug. Hmm? But but I definitely am much better today, much better. I'm so much happier. I'm so much at peace because of a choice. It's a choice that every single one of us can make. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you. What, how did... How do you think other people around you, when they saw the way you handled this, like your family or your friends or other people, how were they also responding? Were they also having the same outlook as you? <laughs> I think I think a lot of people thought I've gone, I've gone mad. I I really do. I uh, you know uh, I think my family was incredibly supported. So Nibel, my ex, and and uh, and Aya, my daughter. Uh, but it actually also took them time. Huh? So, it, for, you know, it only started after 10 million happy was when people said, ah, I get it. This is what you were trying to achieve. You were trying to share him with the world. Oh, that's beautiful. OK, now, um, a lot of what we try to do in life is really badly affected by 
what others think of us. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, what others think of us. I, again, I write about that uh, extensively in Soul for Happy. I always say that the second biggest reason for unhappiness in the world is ego. It's 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 uh, it's believing that we should be uh, a certain image and uh, and trying to make that image yourself in front of yourself and in front of others. Okay, while while the truth is, you'll never be anything that you're not. Mm-hmm. And so when you're when you're pretending to be something on or when when you're attempting to do something, everyone who is not like you, which is the majority of people, by the way, mm-hmm. will tell you, oh, this is stupid. Right. You know, I mean, think about it. Raising a child when Ali or Aya were young, you know, my mother would say something. Nibel's mother would say something else. Our friends would say something else. Nibel would say something. I would say something. And everyone has a view. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which one do you listen to? And, 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 uh, and you know, if we can overcome our ego huh, and basically say, I'm going to listen to everyone, I'm going to take everyone's advice and then I will decide. I will I will do what fits me, not because I'm arrogant, but because maybe, uh, you know, because I don't have hair, hmm, I may want to wear a hoodie in summer in London and everyone will think of me as crazy. Okay, Mm -hmm. but it is this is what fits me. This is this is what works for me. Some people will say, oh, but, you know, you should do this. You should do that. You should wear this. You should wear that. You should go in there. Uh, and so, so basically, at the beginning, I think a lot of people thought I was mad. Okay, I the experience was incredible. I mean, to to write, I I don't know if I completely wrote this or it was written through me. Uh, some parts of it, you know, I would write and then wake up the next day and look at it and say, "Wow, that's good stuff, man. Who wrote this?" Like, you know, it's really, <laughs> yeah. it's really, really. I mean, maybe it was inside. I don't know. But at at the end of the day, it really helped me with my my grief without without even publishing the book, if I had never published it, it was definitely the right thing to do. Now, publishing it and starting on a mission that hopefully will change the world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with your help and everyone who's listening, uh, it's definitely something that was worthwhile. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of that mission and spread the message as well. I, um, as I was reading the book, there were a few things that really stuck out to me. And you know, of course, the happiness equation, how you came to that, I thought was really interesting, you know, the way you broke it down. And then also the way you talked about thoughts and the, who you actually are as a person, which you kind of just tie it into right now. Yeah. And I, so, so for people listening, what exactly is the happiness equation? And then how do thoughts and like knowing who you are play into that? So the uh, if, if you look back at any event that ever happened in your life that made you unhappy, uh, that same event could make someone else happy, and it could make you happy at a different time, okay, uh, or, or different circumstances. I always say rain never makes anyone happy or unhappy. Rain, if you want to water your plants, make you very happy. If you want to sun tan, it makes you very unhappy, okay? So in reality... The only thing that describes uh, or, or triggers unhappiness is not the events of life. It's a comparison between the events of life and how you actually want life to be. Okay. So if you, you know, if uh, if you uh, um, um, if, if you want 
something and it doesn't happen that makes you unhappy. And, th and that's the survival mechanism that I was talking about. So your happiness, the happiness equation, your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should behave. Okay. So think of your, uh, of your, uh, as I said, if you're of your brain as a survival machine, and its function is to analyze the world around it. And when it finds that something doesn't match its expectations of the optimum environment for you, it will alert you in the form of an emotion, a negative emotion that is associated with unhappiness. So let's take a few definitions. Huh? In, that, in that definition, events minus expectations. Huh? So happiness is equal to or greater than events minus expectations. Right. That makes happiness not what we mistake happiness for in the modern world. So in the modern world, we think that happiness is about a vacation or a party or, you know, uh, having fun or going to the movies or, you know, practical jokes or whatever it is that people associate with happiness. That's all fun. fun okay. Yeah. And, and fun in my analysis is what I call the state of escape. This is not a state of happiness. Yeah. It's a, it's a state where you're unable to find genuine happiness. So what you do is you engage your physical form in activities that would numb your brain long enough so that you don't actually solve the happiness equation. Right. That's and much when, easier in today's society now. Absolutely. It's yeah. the, I, I call it weapons of mass distraction. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is, you know, this is, uh, it's so, and it's, it's much easier. It's much easier to advertise and it's much easier for someone to make money selling it to you. Okay. Uh, but the truth is we all know that fun doesn't last. So if, you know, if your unhappiness is a headache, sun, uh, you know, fun, fun is just a painkiller. Okay. Uh, basically you take a painkiller, you get rid of the symptom for as long as the uh, effect of the, you know, of, of the, of the, of the, of the dose that you took of the painkiller lasts. And then when the painkiller uh, wears out, you have to take another pill and another pill and another pill. And you can see that huh? people who are addicted to fun, it's like they go from party to party and they, you know, and the minute the party is over, unless they just supplement that with, I don't know, running uh, mm -hmm. to the gym or, you know, jumping out of an airplane, uh, you know, basically as long as they allow their brains to engage, they will feel unhappy. And so they constantly distract uh, right. their, themselves. Happiness is different. Huh? Happiness is events minus expectations are zero or positive. Okay. Which basically means happiness is when you're okay with life as it is. Okay. So you, you look at the events around you and you say, you know, I, I, I make the joke of, uh, you know, um, someone would look at her, her boyfriend walking in with, you know, some flowers and being really nice and kind, but he has four hairs in his ear. Okay. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, sometimes I always say men should grow more, but you know, but he has, he has, he has four, he four hairs in his ear and she would look at the four hairs and say, he doesn't love me. Right. Okay. okay. You know, if he loved me, he would groom for me. He doesn't love me because I'm getting old. I, I hate dating. I'm going to spend the rest of my life alone uh, and so on. You can, you can always build trauma around any right. events, right? So even if you're and, doing, even if, if things are going great, if they're not meeting your expectations of how great you imagined them to be, then you're still going to be unhappy. I mean, honestly, anyone listening to this podcast, I don't even know you, but things are going great. Yeah. Okay. You want, you want things to not go great? Go and try a, a week in Africa or a, a, a day in Syria or, you know, um, just spend um, a couple of days in India where people don't have food to eat. Huh? If you have a device 
and a subscription, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to data networks so that you can get yourself a podcast. Yeah. Okay. You're probably luckier than 99% of the world. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Right. And we forget that. Why do we forget that? Because our brains are survival machines. Hmm? They're not interested in telling you everything's great. There is no survival value in that. If a tiger shows up, Hmm? Your brain doesn't say, oh, my God, beautiful animal. Yeah. It's, it's the truth. Right? It is a beautiful animal. Your, yeah. your brain wants to say we're going to die. And so it looks at everything, huh? a Facebook post that, that doesn't get uh, likes or a, an Instagram post from one of your friends that, uh, you know, appears to have a much prettier butt than she doesn't. She does actually mm-hmm. have. Right. And you take all of those your brain translates them as threats it's like oh my god if she has that but i'm never going to be with anyone right and you know and and basically uh uh, we go through that survival mechanism of unhappiness because we look at everything and we find what's wrong with it now Mm -hmm. you asked me how do how do our thoughts play into that in general events almost always meet expectations believe it or not life is highly predictable including the death of a child. When Ali died, I picked up the phone and I called my brother, who's a surgeon, and I said, is that even possible? It's an appendectomy. It's like, how can that be? And he said, well, Habibi, I'm so sorry, but surgeons are humans, okay? That specific uh, error that happened happens tens of millions of times, okay? And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes they fix it and sometimes they don't, okay? And so, yes, millions of people die. Uh, because of, I, I think, I don't re- recall that uh, accurately, but I think that medical malpractice or, you know, uh, or mistakes mm-hmm. lead to, is the second or third uh, yeah. It's up uh, there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, cause of death in, in the U.S. And, and that's probably even worse in, in less developed countries. Huh? Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, it's truth. Events meet expectations. And by the way, I'm going to die too. News, news, everyone. I am going to die. I'm, I'm much more certain that I will be where Ali is someday, okay, uh, than I am certain that I will live another day. Yeah. It's, it's as simple as that. And, and it's the truth. You, we hate it or not is irrelevant. Huh? It's just the truth. Now, if the reason why we don't see the truth is because of what I call the six grand illusions and the seven blind spots. Okay, the six grand illusions are modern world creations, concepts that we turn, tend to believe in the modern world that make us succeed in navigating this complex life that we've created as humanity. But they're not true. They're just illusions. If you factor them into your happiness equation, most of the time events uh, will not meet expectations because expectations will be set very badly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then, on the other hand, there are seven blind spots. The seven blind spots are not defects in your brain. They're actually features that your brain uses to make sure that it always looks for what's wrong. 60%, 67% of all thoughts in an adult brain are negative. Okay? Is it even conceivable that 67% of the events of your life are bad? Not at all. But your brain would rather tell you that something is bad when it isn't Mm-hmm. to keep you safe than, it te- than telling you that something is not when it is and then you become unsafe, right? Mm-hmm. So the seven blind spots and the six grand illusions, you fix those, you will find that you, get, you, you will get rid of what I call unwarranted unhappiness, unhappiness that really has no reason behind it. It's like, right. so on, honestly, four hairs in his ears doesn't mean he doesn't love you. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, so 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 when you th- when you when you get rid of them, hmm, you find happiness more often. The top of the grand illusions is the illusion of thought. Okay, thought is real, huh? Thought is not an illusion, but I think therefore I am is the illusion. Yeah. Okay, most most people think that this little voice in their head is them talking to them, right? right? If my if my brain brings up some thoughts, you know. Most people will think that this is Mo talking to Mo. And that's absolutely not true. And, you know, this is a very Western mentality. Mm -hmm. The thoughts in your head simply are created by your brain as a third party. Now, let me give you a few philosophical views of that first and then the science behind it. You wake up every morning and there is your heart is pumping blood around your Uh, body. It's a survival mechanism. Blood being pumped around your body is the product of your, that, you know, piece of meat that we call a pump. That's your heart. Okay. Has anyone ever woken up in the morning and say, I said, I pump blood. Therefore I am. Nobody does that. (laughs) Right. right? It's Uh, it's an automatic process. uh, Yeah, exactly. It's uh, autonomous and it's basically uh, uh, part of, the, of your survival and you don't associate with the biological product of your heart, mm-hmm. okay? Nobody thinks of themselves as urine. Nobody associates, you know. <laughs> I seriously, I mean, yeah, I, I hope not, right? I, I, I said that in a public speech once and, you know, I said, or number two, and, and, and one person said, ah, I feel like number two sometimes, but yeah, <laughs> right? No, yeah. The, the, the truth is, you're right, you, you don't say I piss, therefore I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm? So, so basically, uh, the truth is we don't associate with the biological functions of our biological organs. The biological uh, product of your brain is a little more refined. It's thoughts, right? So you tell yourself those thoughts are me telling me what to do, okay? If it was you telling you what to do, what it, why would it need to speak? You would instinctively know what it is. Huh? So so it's not I think, therefore I am. It's I am, therefore my brain thinks. My brain is a third party. It's a piece of meat. Yeah. Okay. It's a beautiful computer, but it is a third party, which actually changes everything. Mm-hmm. Because if it's a third party, then I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to obey it. I can debate what it tells me. I can ask for evidence. Okay. I can uh, uh, challenge it and look for the truth. Right. So I actually I know this sounds weird, but I call my brain Becky. Okay? <laughs> I, I yeah. do. And, and, and I, I, you know, it was one of my dear friends when I explained this concept to her. She came back to me, you know, a week later, we were having a coffee. She said something weird. And I said, what? What did you just say? And she said, no, no, forget it. Becky told me. And I was like, who's Becky? And she said, my brain. I call her Becky because she was the most annoying girl in school. <laughs> she, she was the one that was always telling her things she didn't want to hear. Now, let's forget the, the, the philosophy. Huh? MIT did a study uh, in 2007 where they put people in MRI machines and they basically uh, uh, um, um, gave them you know, puzzles and measured their brain activities And it would take you a few seconds in whichever part of your brain that is associated with this specific problem solving to solve that puzzle. And then it would take up to eight seconds with the verbal association part of your brain, uh, you know, the part that you use when you speak out loud. That part would start to light for up to eight seconds before the participant would actually know the answer. Hmm. Right. So literally your brain first finds the answer 
and then it turns it into English so that you can understand it. And that's, again, a, a, a modern world illusion. Huh? So mm-hmm. there is your subconscious thinking and your conscious thinking. And when we start to learn to speak, we, we use words as the only building block of knowledge that we can associate with. Words are processed in your left brain. Mm-hmm. And, and, be, and, and so accordingly, to be able to understand concepts, we now turn them to words inside our brains so that we can understand them. Huh? Of course, those of us who are more you know, connected to their feminine, who are able to actually connect to more than just our left brain functionalities, can sometimes associate with concepts without really calling them anything. Okay, And I've been working significantly on empowering more of my right brain and my feminine side, if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it sounds weird with my you know, thick voice, but, you know, <laughs> but no, but truly, I mean, every one of us has feminine and masculine right. and our, our world is becoming hyper left brain. Then it's probably the reason for most of our problems in the world. Huh? Mm. And so when you associate more with your, with your right brain, with your feminine side, you can then grasp concepts without really putting words to them. Okay. You can, you can feel, you can, uh, see shapes and colors and emotions and sensations and just put all of that and, and, and grasp paradoxes and put all of that in a concept that your left brain, your words would fail to, to grasp, but you understand it in, in, intuitively. Mm. Now, um, when you understand, I, I think, therefore, I am is an illusion, the illusion is over. Next time your brain tells you something that's making you miserable, treat it like I treat it. I have a very simple contract with my brain. Yeah. And the contract is you can bring me joyful thoughts or useful thoughts. That's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anything other than that, if you're an annoying Becky and you're going to come to me and complain and make me feel bad and then leave, you know, there's no need for that. I would, I would, if, if Becky was a third party, I would tell her, Hey Becky, why are you doing this? Yeah. Can we think of something nice? So if, if my brain can bring me something joyful, hmm, such as the thought, Ali lived, my brain is so good at bringing the thought, Ali died, mm-hmm. okay? Because yeah. it's the negative thing. It's the thing it wants to do something about. Hmm? Yeah. I, I respond by saying, Ali lived. Yeah. And, and when I say, Ali lived, oh my God, that's the most joyful thought on the planet. Yeah. Hmm? He, all the all the laughs, all the jokes, all the games we played together, all the wisdom he taught me, all the hugs and love that I wouldn't trade for anything. Mm-hmm. Okay, even the pain that I feel for missing, I'll take the pain for him to have lived. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Now that's a joyful thought, and I can make that choice. I can tell my brain, "Give me a joyful thought. Mm-hmm. Look at the full side of the glass." Hmm? Or a useful thought. Okay. Ali, uh, 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 you know, Ali is not coming back. So what kind of thought can I can generate? Hmm? A thought like share his model with the world, set yourself a target of 10 million happy, go out and speak to people, learn and make it better so that you can actually get him to be remembered and loved across the world and mm-hmm. make the world a better place in the process. Right. Mm-hmm. Great thought brain. OK. Solving problems is a great thought. Experiencing life is a great thought. Mm-hmm. Sitting there and whining. Horrible thought. Mm-hmm. It's a waste of your life, and it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, I think that 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 you are not your thoughts is a is a sort of difficult concept to grasp 
because I did I did also come across this concept before reading. I'm not sure if you've heard of Michael Singer's book, The Untethered Soul. He oh, talks great book, phenomenal book, because he he really helped me grasp that idea that you're not your thoughts because you're having these conversations in your head all the time. And some of them are like, you don't like these thoughts. You do like these thoughts. Like, how do you distance yourself and to understand that, okay, this is not, this is not me. These thoughts are not who I am. They're just thoughts. And you, you mentioned it in your book, which was, which I thought was really interesting. And you said your thoughts, they're just considerations. They're just something to consider that your brain is bringing forth to you. And you're, you, the person viewing those thoughts is you, you have the option to consider that thought or not consider it or throw it in, in the garbage. Well, I, I, I actually use very practical techniques, you, mm-hmm. you know, to, to train my brain just, just so that you, you, you know, huh? so you, you learned it from the untethered soul. I learned it from a new earth, uh, um, you know, Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if, uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle is an incredible teacher, but I don't know if you've ever heard him speak. He speaks very slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and uh, believe it or not, uh, when I heard A New Earth I, I, on Audible uh, at the first time, I actually decided to give my brain uh, sort of an ultimatum. If my brain start, uh, attempted to trick me, into believing that it was me again, I would listen to the entire book, A New Earth, slowly, from start to finish. And then my brain would go like, okay, okay, I get it. Uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be you ever again. And okay. then two weeks later, my brain would come back, so I would play the book again. Okay? I did it 17 times. Wow. 17 times. I remember vividly the last time I was actually, I, I, I put my headphones on and I went walking for three hours. I'm very serious about my happiness. Huh? Yeah. Understand yeah. this is important. This is stuff that's more important than going to the gym. Yeah. And, and, peop- and people go and spend hours and hours in the gym. I do too, huh? but I spend hours in my happiness gym. Mm-hmm. So I, I use that. The other is I actually treat my brain as a friend. Hmm? But a friend that is different sometimes than who I am. So, so you know, I, I love everyone that I've ever worked with. And when they walked into my office and they started complaining, I had a very simple technique. Huh? If anyone came into my office and started complaining, oh, the legal team, they don't want to help us and we need to close this contract. And I would say, oh, my God, and what else? Right. And I give them 10 minutes, a third of the meeting to say everything that's inside. Mm-hmm. Then the next 10 minutes, I say, okay, can you tell me what is good about this? Why are they doing this? Is this good for the business? You know, can you tell me what is good about them? Can you tell me, you know, are they nice people? Have you ever uh, uh, encountered uh, anything uh, from their side that made you feel good? You know, and so on. So I basically go into experiential thinking where I ask people to see the full truth. Okay. And then the third 10 minutes, I say, so what can we do about it? Now that we know the full side and the, the empty side, what can we do about it? Problem solving, right? And I do exactly the same thing with my brain. I have a very, very simple exercise that I encourage everyone to do. I set a timer on my phone. I put my phone uh, face down for 30 minutes, okay? And through the 30 minutes, I listen to every thought my brain brings. I repeat it, okay, with acknowledgement and then ask what else, okay? And then... 
uh, I have one rule, which is don't bring the same thought twice. Very simple. Okay? So I simply sit there and my brain will go like, um, uh, you know, you are going to be late to the podcast recording. I would say, okay, um, you, I'm going, we may be late for the podcast recording. What else? And I don't try to solve it. I don't try to, to say, oh, no, no, we're not. I don't try to object. I don't try to analyze it. I just repeat it, acknowledge it, and say what else. And then my brain will say, uh, you haven't spoken to Aya for three days. Oh, I haven't spoken to Aya for three days. That's important. Okay, what else? Mm-hmm. And I keep doing that until my brain starts to first... Uh, it will start to go like, oh, he's listening to me. I might as well say something good, right? Mm-hmm. And believe it, you will feel a visible uh, difference in the speed and randomness of the thoughts. And then after a while, it will go, uh, oh, by the way, you're going to be late for the podcast recording. And I go like, yeah, but you said that before, brain. What else? Mm-hmm. Hmm? 20 minutes, 25 minutes is what it takes for me, for my brain to go like, um nothing. That's all I have. Hmm. And then it goes quiet. Okay. When it goes quiet, Rami, it is heaven itself. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. Huh? It yeah. is a, a, a joy that is like, unlike any joy. So I've learned over the years. I mean, this is, if you want the black belt master yeah. m- mastery level of, uh, of mastering your brain. Huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's not, it do, it's not meditation. It doesn't require you to observe your breathing. As a matter of fact, I take a notepad with me. If, you know, if it, if it says, uh, remember to call Aya tomorrow, I just write remember to call Aya tomorrow so that it doesn't have to bring that thought yeah. again. Okay. Uh, if you want to go to Jedi master level, what I do is when my timer goes off, 30 minutes in, I ask for another 30 minutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And sit in silence. After your brain has come up with all of the ideas that it wanted you to listen to and you are not listening and it goes into that silence, believe me, the most magnificent insights will suddenly come to you and they will not come to you in the left brain. They will come to you on the right brain. You will Mm -hmm. grasp things that you never, ever thought were possible. Okay. And you will see them and they will feel real and you will associate with them. Hmm? And, and, and it will be different. It will be different than all of the white noise that's always in, in our heads all the time. So essentially, you're just do, you're doing like a brain dumping. You're getting everything out of your thoughts, letting whatever comes to mind come down and writing it down or just yeah. getting it out yeah. of there and then yeah. sitting there through is, the rest of it and there, there meditating. No harm, or, there is no harm in thoughts. Huh? Yeah. Thoughts can never harm you unless you grant them that power by obsessing about them and making them torture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where did you learn to do that? Where did, did, where did this idea come from for you? Did you just kind of develop it? I, I'm, I, I, I am a bit against traditional meditation, if you want. Mm-hmm. And so I've always developed, and not, not against it because it doesn't work. It works brilliantly. Right. Okay? So please don't get me wrong. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but, but most of us, with our very busy lifestyle in the modern world, we don't do it right. Mm-hmm. And because we don't do it right, it doesn't work right for us. So, you know, typical, a, a typical Tibet, Tibetan monk, for example, will meditate for hours a day for years on end hmm? until their neuroplasticity changes, rebuilds their frame, and, uh, you know, their, their brains in ways where, where you don't come up with all of those incessant, incessant thoughts. Okay. The best of us, I think the statistic I read about the United Kingdom as a representation of the, of the Western world is that less than 10% of everyone in the UK meditates once a month. 
or more. Okay, oh, wow. and and the numbers for people who meditate regularly every day is probably in the single like one or two three percent, huh? and 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 that doesn't mean that they meditate for hours. They may meditate for half an hour or ten minutes a day. The few of us that actually meditate properly, they get there. Now, mm-hmm. I understand the need for that, and in my next book, which I just finished a couple of weeks ago, I talk a lot about what I call meditation in the modern world because mm-hmm. you cannot afford. To let your uh, incessant thoughts take you over and, you know, basically torture you all the time. And so there needs to be a way for you to learn to to meditate as per how the modern world works. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, what does the modern world, what has the, the modern world taught me growing up? It taught me to think about everything. Okay. So instead of resisting that thinking, I actually let my brain think. And I developed a technique where it allows me to think. Nothing constrained there, no constraint there, and, and, and listen to it. And basically, object of my meditation, not my breathing, okay, but my thoughts. And again, if you go back to, to Eastern practices, there are lots of meditations that will actually, but they are at an advanced level, that will actually tell you to observe your thoughts, Okay, uh, you know, meditation is what I call experiential thinking. It happens in your prefrontal cortex, which regulate a, a, a attention. It happens in your insula, and basically, you, your brain is uh, is focused on experiencing the world as it is. Mm-hmm. Whether what you experience is your breathing, or what you experience is your thoughts, or what you experience is just the colors of the room around you, mm-hmm. as long as you can focus your attention on experiencing life as it is, uh, you you would develop a technique that would allow you to be present to to have deliberate attention as i call it in my next book and mm-hmm. that deliberate attention believe it or not i believe if that would be would count as meditation then i must be meditating 12 hours a day right because you can be meditating doing things throughout your day as well like a task that you're really focused Absolutely. on chopping some pie i find myself meditating when i'm cooking you know chopping parsley parsley cutting the peppers things like that that for me is meditation most of the time. Absolutely, you're you're spot on. Huh? So there are typical activities. I'm playing an instrument. You can be meditating, to, you know, uh, cooking, uh, you know, working out. Some people would consider that a meditation. But the the key to all of those is that you focus on what you're doing, not on the thoughts in your head. Yeah. Okay. So so it's not like I'm just cutting the lemon and thinking about the four hairs. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cutting the lemon and focusing on cutting the lemon and looking at the lemon and smelling the lemon and experiencing it. Huh? But again, there are many techniques I, I, I talk about, you know, for example, when, I, uh, when I'm on my commute to work, if I walk, I try to take a beautiful picture before I get to work. Okay. And you'll be surprised what you will observe. Huh? You'll be surprised how many people will smile in your face. You'll be surprised how many people will stop. Mm-hmm. And if you ask them to, to to take a picture and they'll stop and say, yeah, of course, I'll be happy to, right? But not mm-hmm. only that, you'll be picturing, uh, taking pictures of butterflies and uh, orange blossoms and things you never knew existed on your path, okay? Uh, and it, uh, none of that is the purpose. The purpose is while looking for something to take a picture of, you're paying full attention instead of just texting on WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if, you know, if, I, if I'm uh, driving to work, I set six radio stations on my uh, on my radio, and I make sure that every song I listen to is a song that I love. If yeah. an ad, if an ad or a presenter or a song that I don't love comes on the radio, I switch to the next station. And that deliberate act of listening to music so that I know what's playing, so that I switch away from what I don't want to hear, 
mm-hmm. is meditation. Okay? Yeah. In, a, in, a, in a meeting room, if someone puts a number on the screen, I will ask and say, where did that number come from? I mean, my team was crazy. It made them crazy early on. And then they actually learned. You know, I, I would say, where did that number come from? And they'd go like, Mo, come on. It's, it's not important. If it's not important, don't put it on the slide. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah. if it's on the slide, I will meditate on it. I will look at it. I will try to understand it. And I will have a conversation around it. Yeah. And so even, eventually, of course, most of our team meetings became you know, four slides of six numbers and that's it. Right. (laughs) And life became, life became so much more focused because deliberate. Less is more. Less is more. The the, the, the issue with our modern world, Rami, is there is so much distraction. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm now, I'm now moving into London for a while and, you know, I'm for the first time ever, I've been downsizing my life for years, Mm -hmm. but this, this time I'm actually counting the number of items I will buy. Okay, I'm giving myself. They say that the, uh, that the that the average American has, I think they consume like a hundred thousand things a year or something like that. Plastic bags and you know uh, uh, disposable this and disposable that and you know you have no idea. Even as simplistic as I'm minimalist, I try to be. Hmm? Mm-hmm. How often I'm walking into a store, a John Lewis or whatever, and telling myself, "Oh, I'd love to buy this," and then I tell myself, "But you're trying to." minimize and then you realize yeah i don't want it and then you realize life is so much better without it mm-hmm. okay it's that it's that constant noise in our life that's causing us to lose deliberate attention in the absence of deliberate attention you start to get incessant thinking and the incessant thinking unregulated is what leads to everything add it leads to depression. It leads to substance abuse. It leads to everything. Okay, that's really interesting because I did. So I have sort of thought because I've been much more active on my social media, especially I'm currently going I'm in residency. I'm already very busy, and then there's all this clutter in my life, and I've noticed that being sucked into social media for too much or having all these distractions day to day really affects my thoughts and then the days the periods where i cut it off completely just just more in the moment more present more peaceful throughout my day my day and productive and in you know and and happy exactly so i so i i I, of course as an engineer i measure everything so i i installed some apps on my phones i don't know if they have them on iphones but on uh, on uh, on android there are quite a few stay focused is the one i use and stay focused as an app will tell you exactly how much time you're putting in every app Hmm. and i'm very deliberate and i try so hard not to waste my time and to always pay attention when i started to measure i realized i spend more than four hours a day on whatsapp Okay. I mean, I use I use WhatsApp as a as a work tool. So a lot of the people that connect with me for one billion happy connect to me on WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. Right. But but just the realization that four hours of my day, the pain in my fingers, the pain in my neck and holding this device, that's not right. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, just noticing it, I start to uh, respond a lot more with a voice message instead of typing. I, you know, I say a, a quick thank you, but not respond sometimes. I, you know, I ask people to uh, become a little more mindful of my time on WhatsApp, and it just changes my life. Hmm. Wow. Now, now uh, that applies to everything. I, you sit in in the underground, or you, you know, you walk the streets, and everyone is just constantly distracted with little messages. You yeah. know, when I well, today in the morning, I was cleaning my WhatsApp video folder. 
Okay. And, you know, I normally don't look at all of those videos that people send me, uh, you know, especially friends and old friends and, you know, like a million and a half things. And I actually started to do a quick calculation today, which is to add the minutes of the videos that I'm deleted. Yeah. That I'm deleting. Hours on end of five minute videos and three minute videos and two minute videos over the last four months. Okay. How, how much life do I have in my life to waste hours wasted watching videos that I never asked for hmm. on topics I'm not interested in, sent to be myself, but, but, but by someone unsolicited when I really, really, it's not adding anything to my life. That's very interesting. I, we, I, I wonder how much we do that throughout the day, scrolling through our social media, watching a video we're not really interested in, watching videos of people probably probably are not really that fond of. No, uh, go, go even worse. And how much time do we watch videos that make us feel horrible? Yeah. How, how often do we watch a violent movie that makes us, makes our heart okay with someone putting a gun against someone else's head and shooting? Mm. How, yeah. this, is, this is neuroplasticity at its best. Yeah. So pe- people think that neuroplasticity works for you in terms of helping you learn. Yes, of course it helps you learn, but it helps you learn whatever you tell your brain to do. If you want right. to complain, complain for six hours a day, you'll be a very good complainer. Right. Okay. If you if you want to watch violence, uh, you know, four times a week, you'll be much more good at violence. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you if you read the, the news and all the hate that is out there, you'll be a very good hater. And, and we do a lot of that. And, I, you know, and I'll go back to happiness is a choice. It's all a, it's all a choice. How do you think that's interesting? How do you think, neuro, I mean, does neuroplasticity play into happiness? That's my it question. Is the, it's the core of happiness. Mm-hmm. It's the core of happiness. Huh? Every, and I don't mean to sound uh, dismissive here, but... I would probably say the majority of your unhappiness, if anyone's unhappiness, is conditioned. So we can train ourselves to become happy. Of course. course. I mean, go around the world. Why are are Latins happier than Eastern Europeans or Germans? Okay. Is it because they have different genetics? Right. If 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 a Chinese child is taken to... Uh, uh, Germany as a child and, you know, learns to speak German with a German family, it will learn through neuroplasticity to be perfectionist, to be uh, uh, critical, to demand that life gives them a service level agreement of 99.99999% of the time. Well, show me the agreement. Where did that come from? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why? Because we're conditioned we're conditioned to be critical. We're conditioned to be cynical. We're conditioned. There is my favorite song is uh, is from Supertramp, the the logical song, and it and it talks about how we are all happy as children, and then they take us away and they teach us how to be critical and you know and and, and responsible and cynical and right and we learn those things and so we become unhappy. Yeah, of course you become better at certain things because those things have have value. But if you're looking for what's wrong in life, you're going to find it. Yeah. Okay. And and you're going to plug that into your happiness equation. And as a result, hmm, events were going to miss the expectations because you're only looking at the bad side of the event. You're not even giving the event the full truth. You're just looking at what's wrong with the event, comparing it to unrealistic expectations that life should treat you like a telco and give you a high, high, high service level agreement. And, you know, even telcos don't. And the reality is... 
none of that is realistic and all of your unhappiness is trained wow can you can you tell us real quick before we wrap this up about your new book and how you're you know kind of helping us deal with the modern world I can. I haven't actually spoken about that yeah. before. Uh, I did very briefly. But anyway, so I, I wrote a book that's called That Little Voice in Your Head. Surprisingly, oh, the same. Yeah, the same topic that you uh, that you wanted to cover today yeah. in terms of the of thought and how thought affects us. It basically is a comparison between our computer systems, uh, software specifically, and our brain and how our brain functions. And basically, it it helps you debug the code uh, that runs your life. OK, so so I talk about things like incessant thoughts and how incessant thoughts happen uh, and, you know, where in the brain they happen and what parts of the brain are missing when they happen and what's the impact of that. And then basically show you that this is a bug. I show you that the imbalance between masculine brain and feminine brain is a massive bug that your brain's design was mm. supposed to be very different. And the massive bug that we have, even even the women amongst us, remember how woman and man is is just body parts. It's not mm-hmm. feminine and masculine, huh? right? Right. And and how and how that uh, uh, you know imbalance uh, the lack of femininity in our whole world is destroying our planet. It's destroying you know uh, 120 species a day. It's uh, it's uh, it's making all of us unhappy. I I take us through uh, uh, every part of the code, and uh, and simply tell you uh, if you fix that. You know those few lines in terms of how you think about certain things. Uh, you can you can find uh, happiness a lot more often. So it's going to actually uh, be available for early readers next week. I don't know how far how quick the podcast is going to be out, but oh, yeah. we're gonna we're we gonna run have it out next week or two weeks. Yeah. We're gonna run a couple of uh, of cycles of uh, of early readers. So so the way I write books is I I write like I write software. Mm-hmm. So I. I prepare a beta version and I give it to readers to, de- to, to sort of debug it, if you want. Yeah. So people tell me what they like and what they don't like, and I improve based on their feedback. Uh, so uh, so th- this is the next book. Uh, for now, uh, I would much rather close with talking about the mission, because I think that's what matters. Yeah. I, think, I, I think our world uh, is at a very critical juncture. Uh, unhappiness has never been higher. Uh, depression has never been higher. Uh, suicide has never been higher, and uh, and uh, we're uh, we we need to do something about it. Okay, because in many ways life is okay. Life is better than it used to be a hundred years ago. Huh? Uh, but uh, but we we are not doing it because of three things. And I think uh, what I'm trying to do with one billion happy as a mission is to correct those three things. One is. We don't believe that happiness is our priority. The modern world has convinced us that success is our priority, that ego is our priority, that the way people perceive our success is our priority. And so accordingly, if you don't consider happiness to be your priority, you, to, you don't do what is needed because you don't even care. Huh? Uh, many of us are convinced that it's okay to pay uh, the tax of your success in the form of unhappiness, that, that it's okay to be unhappy as long as it's on the path to success. And that's absolutely wrong. We are born happy. It's our birthright. Just like we're supposed to be healthy and when we catch the flu, we do something about it. We're also supposed to be happy. And, you know, if we feel unhappy, we should do something about it. So 
the number one ask of my mission is to make happiness your priority. If not the number one priority, at least at an equal priority to your success. Okay. Uh, Number two is invest in that priority. So just like fitness, uh, you know, if you if you go to the gym four times a week and eat healthy, you're going to be fit. You know, we could go into a lot more detail, hmm? but fitness in a a nutshell is eat healthy and work out. Okay. Happiness is very similar. If you invest in your happiness an hour a day, four times a week, uh, like you go to the gym, you know, read a book, uh, watch, you know, a a video online, uh, sit with people that are happy and ask them and learn, go to conferences, whatever that is. An hour a day, four times a week, uh, invest in your happiness and you will become happier. I guarantee you that neuroplasticity will kick in and you will learn habits that will make you happier. Number three, number three, which is really the reason for almost all of the issues we have in the modern world today is when you know how wonderful it is to feel happy, find the compassion in you to want other people to be happy. And I thought what I ask people to do is to spread the message like you so kindly contacted me and wanted to spread this message to thousands of others. Right. Mm-hmm. I ask everyone to just take a simple target of two people. Just tell your sister and your best friend. OK. About what you learned about happiness. Make them make happiness their priority and invest in their own happiness and make them promise to tell two other people. And the whole design of one billion happy is this simple exponential function where every if, if every one of us tells two people who tell two people who tell two people, we would reach a billion happy people or a billion people heavily investing in their own happiness in less than five years. And that would be a very different world than the world that we have today. So you took a, a target of a few thousand. I would ask everyone listening to us to please take as big a target as you can take. Okay, two two people or ten or twenty or if you if you're a a a public speaker, make them make it a thousand. If you're an influencer online, make it a million. Okay, and tell people because it's about time. Our world badly needs a billion happy. I love that message. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Mo, for being on here and for sharing your story, for sharing Ali's legacy with us, for giving us the 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 knowledge and the skills to become more happy. I really admire you and you're someone who I really look up to as uh, as someone who is an intellectual and uh, driven by purpose. So thank you so much and uh, I'm looking forward to helping you with this one billion people happy goal. Thanks for having me and thanks for helping me spread this message. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it with Mo. This is probably one of the most important podcasts we have done to date. So I hope that we are making a dent in Mo's vision to make 1 billion people happy. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please do us the favor of sharing it on social media. Screenshot the episode, tag us at beyond underscore med or tag me at drrami.do and we will holler at you back. Thank you guys. Peace.